If you have your Bible and you want to go to Numbers 21, we're going to, it's not a lot of verses we're going to read today. It's just like six verses. So not a whole bunch of verses, but it's something that I really think is going to be interesting for us to look at. And I want to start by, by way of confession or by way of self-revelation, by way of transparency, which is simply this. I don't know if you all know this or not, but I am a genuinely weird person. Any other weird people out there? Yeah, okay. Like, if you really knew how weird I am, you think you know me. <laughs> but if you knew me, you'd be like, wow, Mark, you got problems. Like, yeah, I know. I've been trying to tell you I got problems. Like, we are all weird. And, and as you get close to people in your life, as you walk this journey close to people, what you start to notice is that people around you hold weird opinions. Have you ever noticed that? Like you thought they were normal until they started talking somewhere along the way and you're like, you think that? I don't, I don't know if I can still talk to you. I'm not sure what that means about what's going on here. Like, for example, let's say you were married to someone and, and as life goes along the way, you suddenly find yourself having a deep discussion about soda. About whether there is a substantive, significant difference between soda in a can or from the fountain at the store. Okay. See, all you guys are weird, okay? <laughs> all my life, I just thought, Coke is Coke, you know, whatever you get. Uh, you know, there you go into a store. Someone asks you to go into a store and get them a soda. You go to the cooler, you pull out a, a bottle, and you're like, here you go. And they're like, you didn't get me from the fountain? No. <laughs> I got you a soda. <laughs> No, it's different from the fountain. I'm like, seriously? I think it says that. So there, like, you find these things out over time, and you're like, I didn't realize that we had such strong ideas and opinions about the difference between fountain soda and other sodas. And that's not the only thing that you find out. You find out things like this. Not all bottled waters taste the same. Did you know that? There's a revival happening in our church right now. I thought water was water. It's like, no, you can't have that bottle. That's terrible. Uh, that's water. It's the same. You think that the, the labels mean anything? Oh, yes, they do. There's a significant taste difference between water. All right. So you got, I'm just like, I am so out of touch. Well, clearly, my, I have no taste whatsoever, right? I, don't, I, I have no discernment to my taste. Here's a newsflash for all of you this morning. There are a significant number of people in our church who hold weird ideas, have weird opinions. A lot of people in our church have weird ideas. And maybe you have become more aware of them through things like social media or conversations or small group or whatever over time. As you walk along this journey, maybe sometimes as you look at them, they, they take you back. It's kind of, I don't know what I can do with that. That's such a strange idea. I'm not sure how to even process that. For them, it feels normal and natural and logical and even right and righteous. And to you, you're like, how can you think that? I don't know where you get that from. You may, you may understand that they are people that you're supposed to love, but you may find it difficult to love people who have weird opinions. But did you know, theologically, you can still Love and serve people with weird opinions. Did you know you can still honor and respect people 
who have weird opinions. In fact, you can even learn from them. And you can even find blind spots in your own life by interacting with them. Weird people are not as bad as sometimes we act like they are. And in fact, just to show you how universal weird opinions are, did you know that almost all of us hold one weird opinion? We probably hold a bunch, but at least one. What we are going to commemorate at the end of the service, make no mistake, this is a weird opinion in our world. That we would believe and we would hold to this idea that the creator of the universe came to save us, to give himself for us. There are people who are like, how can you believe that? How can you live like that is true? But for us who believe it, for us who hold it, this is precious. This is life. This is hope. We hold weird opinions all the time. Today we're going to look at a story that feeds into the story about which we are going to reflect on at the end of the service. It is a story that Jesus himself connects to his death on the cross for us. And here we are in Numbers chapter 21. It is the story of yet another rebellion by Israel. Seriously? Yes, seriously. And even more improbable, it is a story of yet more mercy from God. And of all the stories that we have read, of all the stories Jesus could have picked from, of all the stories that we've seen of Israel's travel from slavery into the promised land, this is the one that Jesus chooses to use as a setup for the declaration that he came to die for the world. The story that we read today. So I want the focus of this service to be that moment that we have at the end when we're holding the elements. I want to build towards that in our souls. And I want us, because of the depth of what we read here, to understand why Jesus took this story and referred to it when he talked to Nicodemus about what it meant to be born again, what it meant to have eternal life. It meant something enough that when Jesus refers to it, he expects Nicodemus, who's heard the story hundreds or thousands of times, to have some understanding of what he's talking about and why he came to die. So, Numbers chapter 21, we are going to start in verses 4 and 5. Just before I do that, I want to briefly mention that verses 1 to 3 are a different story. It's a very short story. It's a story about a battle. Last time we were together, we saw that they couldn't go through Edom. They had to go around Edom. And as they begin that journey at the end of uh, chapter uh, 20, Aaron died up on the mountain and Eleazar took his place. And then just jumping right into chapter 21, they're on this journey and and a nation, an army, attacks Israel, captures some of their people and And Israel turns to God and asks for help, and God helps them and delivers them and gives them victory. And then we read this, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Wait a minute, am I reading the right passage? Didn't we already read this? We did this before, right? We've done this like a bunch of times, haven't we? It sounds like, how is it possible that we are still having the same discussion? Time after time, they have complained about the threat on their lives, and time after time, God has come through. We are approaching the end of 40 years in the wilderness, and here they are 
complaining again. What is wrong with them? Noticing what is not good enough, as is natural for human beings to do, how could they? Well, if you'd like to know the answer to that, I think you could get this magical device called a mirror. And you could quickly see how they could, because you do too. All human beings have this gravity that pulls us towards noticing what seems not good enough or out of place and and mentioning it and thinking it's going to do something for us as we complain. And it starts to, just like a mirror, reveal the truth of our soul. As a matter of fact, I would suggest to you, and I, I say this humbly, recognizing that I do the same thing. I think we find ourselves complaining about our lives while living lives that most people throughout history never even imagined could be possible. But we still find ways to complain, thinking we live so entitled that we're entitled to this and that, whatever. I mean, billions and billions of people have lived before us that didn't even think that could be possible. But if I don't have it, or if my life's not like this, or if I have to struggle, or if I, how could I? So as we read stories like this, I would say it calls us to take a look at ourselves because we're as habitual about complaining and finding fault as Israel is. And I would tell you, just like Israel, I think there is a solution for your penchant to complaining. Not a switch that you flip and it all goes away, but something where you could confront this natural tendency in you by your faith. As a follower of Jesus, as a person who put their trust in Christ, you have some things that could equip you when you recognize that you become a complainer. Because we complain when we start to lose our wonder about the miracles God has performed and is performing in our lives. And we're going to see that Right here. Because when they're complaining about food, what food are they complaining about? A miracle that God is still performing for them. We lose our wonder at the miracle works God has done. And we lose our gratitude for His goodness. So we forget. We forget where we came from. We forget this whole story. We forget the arc of the story. We start to take history for granted instead of appreciating what it tells us and the perspective it gives us on today. Then we start to take for granted what we once knew was a miracle or a blessing. They describe this as a crisis, but the very food that they are so angry about is God's miraculous care for them. When it first showed up, they didn't have anything to eat. They had no mistake, this is God sustaining us. Now they're complaining, we detest this miserable food. At the same time, they're saying there is no bread, there is no water. Our complaints don't always make sense. But they always feel very, very important to us. They always feel like some kind of level of crisis. Now, for them, this very food that should remind them that God has sustained them each day. And by the way, how long was God's plan for them to eat manna? Remember, the reason that they're eating this for 40 years is because God wanted this to be about a two-year trip that they turned into a 40-year trip. And did God go, well, I only was going to give you manna for two years, so you're on your own from there. Or did God pour out His grace for decades because of their rebellion? And now they're complaining about how long God has continued to provide 
miraculously for their lives. All they want to know now is, God, why do you hate us so much? Why did you bring us out here to die? And what they're saying is, God, you're the problem. When we complain, we start to reflect this attitude in our soul. God, you're the problem. If it weren't for your choices, I could really enjoy my life. I mean, you're in charge of all this stuff, and I've trusted you, and I'm following you, and this is what you give me? If you could just give me something better, something that I think would be good, then I could enjoy my life. God, why are you in my way? Why did you lead me into a place with danger? Why did you lead me into a place of lack? Why did you give me something that I'm tired of having? Complaining. Now, maybe you think, complaining is not a big deal. I do it every day. Do you realize how self-serving it is to say that? How much latitude we give ourselves. And I think we give ourselves that kind of latitude because we don't want to take a look at it and understand how serious it is. It seems that God takes it much more seriously than we do. Do you recognize what complaining does to your soul? Do you, have you ever stopped and taken a look at what complaining does to those around you? especially those that you love? Or thought about how it affects your witness? How it disconnects you from your purpose in this life? Did you know you were not put here to complain? Did you know that complaining actually goes against the grain of what God has for you as a bearer of the kingdom good news? Oh, this kingdom's awesome. I mean, I hate my life. But this kingdom's great. Do you see? And, and if you live in a, in a stuck cycle of this is so bad, this is so horrible, when will it end, when will it end? Do you see what it does to your soul? Do you live in the fruit of the Spirit? Woohoo, joy and peace. And, no, you live miserable and heavy. We take it so lightly. It seems God takes it much more seriously. And I would say, for this people of God, this mindset that God is the problem, that God can't be trusted, that if He would just get out of the way, we could do our life, this is going to doom a nation that God is about to march into battles. It will disable their purpose for God's kingdom. Because God has called these people, the nation of Israel, to reflect the Creator's power and goodness by their story. They, we still read their story today as a reflection of God's goodness and greatness because of how He worked in His people. But if those same people testify regularly that this God is not their Savior or solution, He is the reason their lives are miserable. If the very nation God put His name on to represent how good and powerful He is are people who are always saying He's not, He's the problem, then the hope that God wants to share with the world isn't shared like it needs to be. We as God's people are reflecting this story. How are we reflecting it? We've learned from it, or we are still ignorant of the impact of complaining. Also, more specifically for them, they are about to enter the promised land. They are marching toward the promised land, and they are going to face some battles that are going to require a faith that's got some roots to it, a faith that's got some hold on it, not a faith that like the first time they're, they're a little thirsty, they're like, God, you're going to kill us. They're going to face some opposition. They're going to face some battles. And God is going to say, these battles are mine, not yours. You've got to know how to trust me when you go into these battles. So maybe 
God knows he needs to confront them now so that they won't be destroyed later. Maybe God is at the business of putting in front of us the real crisis. They thought the crisis was food and drink. I don't like the menu. The real crisis was they still hadn't figured out how to trust God. Maybe what you think the crisis is isn't the crisis at all. Maybe what you think the crisis is is only God's platter for you to figure out that you can trust Him, that He's never failed you before and He's not about to start now, that your God has been good and faithful, that He loves you, that He's rescued you, that His redemption for you is ongoing, that it is reliable and that you can build your life on that. And you can act like that and you can talk like that. Maybe it's not about all the things that are like, why is this in my life? But that's right, it's not about those things. It's about who is in my life. You're the one that my life comes from. So often, stories like this, before I get into the rest, I just want to talk about one thing. So often, stories like this are thought of as indicative of a God who is vengeful and mad and just ready to hit the smite button on people all the time. Like, oh, you did one thing wrong. Oh, I'm going to get it. Like, that's the image that people take from stuff like this. When people do something wrong and God pours judgment out on them, like, is that that big of a deal? Really? Complaining? Is that that big of a deal? Why, God, why is God such an angry God? Well, let me say this first. If you reject the writings of Scripture as accurate and inspired, or if you don't believe in the God that it presents, then I understand why you might reduce it down to that. But if you're someone who's, trusted the Lord, and you believe that this story reflects not only an accurate display of God's story through human history, but who He is, His character, His nature, then we have some ways to grab a hold of this as it goes. Like, for example, intentionally, we have walked through the story from the beginning of Exodus through here. We're coming into the end of Numbers. It's taken us about, like, three years to go through that. I think we started it in the fall of 2019 or something like that. It's been a long journey here going from Exodus through this whole story. And for us, that feels like, wow, that's a really long time. But this was 40 years for them. And they just didn't do it once a week, an hour on Sunday morning. They did it like day in, day out, right? So as we read this story and we see God respond to something, let's remember what we know about the context of this. If anything, God is immensely patient with his people, Right? We're tired of talking about their refusal to trust. We're tired of their complaining. In fact, we're complaining about their complaining, right? Because we're like, seriously? What's wrong with you? If we're honest, God has been much more patient than we can imagine. So when God brings judgment on his people, it isn't because he's got a quick trigger or he's eager to judge. See, we are, but okay, so God is a lot of patient, but isn't he supposed to have unlimited patience? Isn't it supposed to be that God never loses it? Maybe another way I've heard people say this is, is God so narcissistic that he can't stand for people not to trust him? Is he so self-involved that everybody's got to trust him because that's the only way he can feed his ego? I get it. I understand that question, but I would say this. If you accept the presuppositions that this is the story of God, his work and his people, the problems of mankind, if you accept that, then it tells us that we are all facing eternal devastation. All of us. And he is the only one who can save us. Trusting him is the only way he does. 
then maybe his concern about his people or people trusting him isn't about him and his ego. Maybe it's about us and our salvation. Maybe he's really passionate about saving people. I don't know if you could think of any way that you could start to try to grasp how passionate God is about saving people, but maybe at the end of the service, you'll be able to like digest a little bit of how passionate the Creator is to save you and why it's such a big deal that when people push away a faith that could rescue them, He goes after them. Maybe it's different than what we've made it. Maybe it's about love. And if this story is true, that God called a people out to bear His name, and through that people, He was going to bring hope to the nations, which is what we learn from Genesis 12, when God says, through you all people will be blessed. Abraham, through your nation, the na- and, and throughout the Old Testament, a light to the Gentiles. This, this idea that Israel is going to be a nation that shines hope out because of they are God's people that having this people know how to trust God really matters. Not just for them, but for all of us who will benefit from their faith. So maybe there's more at stake than just, oh, they had a bad day. So maybe we don't need to be so quick to try to say God should have done better. And God does bring judgment on them. Verse 6 and 7, it says this, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes out among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. This crisis is God's way of trying to get through to them because they're marching into battles that they're going to have to be able to trust Him. And He's given them reason to trust Him. Their whole story that we're reading, that they read, that they knew about, that they talked about, the character of God that's been revealed through the works that they've seen and His provision, His watch care over them, the battles that they've won, they know who He is. And He's given them promises, I'm taking you into the land. They have a way to trust Him. But if they don't trust Him or they won't trust Him, they have to find a way to trust Him. So God comes after them, and here come these snakes into the people. They are de- described in Hebrew as fiery, which probably refers to the physical sensation of the, the, the poison after a bite. And it's a deadly poison. People die. We think that snake bites, the snake bites that they had were not immediately deadly. There was some time in between. Not everybody died right away. But, so there was some time for them to go to Moses. And what they come to Moses with is their solution, which is often our solution. When God brings pain into our life, to bring desperation into our life, to remind us that He's our only Savior, that we should be walking by by faith in the blessing as well as in the hardship, we say, God, take the pain away. God, take the problem away. God, make it better. See, here's the thing. They needed the pain because they needed to turn to Him. They needed to learn what it meant to trust God to save them. So they say, God, take the snakes away. I know our own failure brought us to this, so just take it away. I'm going to tell you God's grace is good, but it's not always what you expect. It's not always what you ask for. God is too good to take the snakes away because even in these short verses, it's already working. Where do they go? in trouble. Moses, the very person they were like, you're our problem. Now they're like, you're our solution. Please pray to God for us. And they, they turn 
they actually admit they're wrong. They say, we were wrong. And, and please ask God to give mercy to us. Very quickly, God's people come to this place of repentance, which is always necessary for salvation. Repentance, even as a believer, repentance is still necessary for God's work to be poured into your life. You need to turn away from the stuff that you've turned to instead of Him and turn back to Him. You can't be like, God, I'm going to still just keep living my life, but please please come save me. He's like, I'd like to save you, but you keep destroying yourself. It's necessary at the beginning we turn away from everything else we put our trust in for the hope of our lives, and we come to Him. We turn, and, and there could be sorrow involved with it. There could just be logic. Everybody's got their own way about it, but the fact of the matter is repentance is always necessary for the work of God. But when we do, God faithfully shows up with grace over and over and over. So God gives Moses an instruction, verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it up on a pole, Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. God didn't remove the snakes. God didn't remove the threat of the deadly bites. But he gave a way to live even though you were bitten. And he put a snake up on a pole so that everyone could see it. So everyone was invited to this miracle of salvation. And it was a choice for them to look in faith and receive a healing miraculously from God. Do you see the parallels? Do you see how closely that parallels? Do you see why Jesus picked this story? Because God didn't take sin out of the world. The, the thing that's bitten all of us and is deadly. He didn't wipe away sinners and he didn't take away the fallout of their sin as it falls into our lives. Many will be bitten and die. As a matter of fact, all of us are born doomed. We've all been bitten. The poison is already in us. It would be too late if all God did was take away all the sin. Because we would, if, if all God did was take away the snakes, many people would have died that had already been bitten. See, God is better than their ask. So he didn't take away the snakes, just like he's not cleaning out the world and sanitizing it. What he did is he made a way that, that bitten people could live, that lost sinners could be saved. No one has to die. He lifts up the sun so that all are invited to believe. No one has to die, but you can receive God's grace by faith. My question to you today is, have you received God's grace by faith? And if you have, when was the last time you were just in wonder about His passion to save you? Today, maybe you need to reflect a little bit on how lost you were before Jesus saved you. <laughs> about how great a salvation God has given you, about how many times, even after you've known him, you've rebelled, you've walked away, and God has been faithful to you in spite of your unfaithfulness. He is still inviting us to look and live, to receive salvation by faith. One last thing before we break for communion, and maybe why Jesus used this story. Later in this chapter, the next story it is the first time since the Red Sea that Israel sings a song about God's deliverance. 
First time since the Red Sea, which is Exodus 14. That they sing. You know what else? What they've done in the meantime about God's deliverance? Complained. <laughs> doubted. Rebelled. And the next verse is, it feels like they finally got it. And as a matter of fact, they're singing a song, and, and if you dig into the scholarship behind it, it's a song about wells. They don't have any water, and they, they need water, so they dig wells. And it, the implication is they're singing the song, Spring Up, O Well. They're singing it before the water's there. They're singing it with expectation. They're singing it in faith. God is going to provide. They've learned. They've got it. And then right after that story are some of the, the great victories. Some victories that we're going to hear about when we get to, to Sihon and Og, we're going to get to victories that they sing about for centuries after God got through to them because of some snakes and a snake on a pole. God will keep coming after us until we get it. He will keep allowing the snakes to bite us and inviting us to come back to faith, the kind of faith that saved us in the first place. That's what I want us to do today. Come back to that faith and that one.